Hello, this is Ashley Chase welcoming you to the Mark Driscoll Podcast. For more content from my dad, Pastor Mark, Senior Pastor here at the Trinity Church in Scottsdale, Arizona, visit realfaith.com, where you'll find study guides to go along with each sermon series as he preaches verse by verse through books of the Bible, daily devotions, free ebooks, and more. Now grab your Bibles and get ready for today's sermon. Alrighty, we are in a great book of the Bible, and most of the time we're just going right through books of the Bible, seeing what God has to say. Uh, If you brought a Bible, go to uh, the New Testament book of James, chapter 5. We're entering into the last chapter of this book, written by Jesus, kid brother, and his big theme is real practical. He's a blue-collar guy. We like to call him the blue-collar scholar of the New Testament, and it's how does faith work in the practical stuff of life. And uh, today we're going to answer the question, how does faith work with your wealth. And so I was thinking about it. So here's my wallet. And uh, here, I don't, does anybody still do money? I don't know if we still do that. So older people said, yes, if you're younger, this is money. Okay. Um, uh, this is, this is Apple pay 1.0 right here. Here it is. A, a tree gave its life. A lot, a lot had to happen to make this happen. I have credit cards as well. And what's interesting on the back of my uh, money, it says in God, we Trust, nice to know that everybody in America loves Jesus and tithes, you know, because it says it right there, in God we trust. It doesn't say that on any of my credit cards, which is kind of curious. There's nothing about God on my credit cards. There's a lot of numbers though. That might be the mark of the beast. Nonetheless, uh, when it comes to the back of our money, I started thinking, when did we start putting on the back of our bills in God we trust. And so uh, it was during the Civil War, our nation was in the process of self-destructing. And and literally when a nation is fighting itself, everybody loses, nobody wins. And so there was this ominous sense that the nation was in desperate peril. And so there was a return to God and the church and people saying, unless God rules over us and reunites us, our our nation is doomed. And so at that time, there was a pastor in, 1861, it was actually uh, November 13th. So it would have been this weekend, 1861, Mr. Watkinson, he was a pastor in Pennsylvania. He decided we need to put God on our currency and our whole nation needs to be reminded that apart from God, we're doomed. And so he sent a letter to the government and here's what's crazy. They read it and did something. So we're in the miracle category now. We're in the, like if you don't believe in miracles, I just told you that the government did something. Okay, so. Uh, and so what happened was the, the secretary, I think it's probably secretary of the treasury, uh, Mr. Chase, uh, he sent a letter back to the pastor. Now what's really interesting is uh, this man who was the secretary, I think of the treasury, he is a descendant of uh, my son-in-law and one of your pastors, uh, Pastor Landon Chase. And so he wrote back and said, dear sir, no nation can be strong except in the strength of God or safe in his defense. The trust of our people in God should be declared declared on our national coins. So pastor writes a letter, government writes back, great idea. Uh, Then the overseer of the mint in Philadelphia was commissioned to come up with the motto and they came up with, in God we trust. So by 1864, in God we trust started to appear on our coins. And by 1951, in God we trust started to appear on our bills. And so to this day, that is our heritage and history. And it's really interesting because uh, on our currency, it connects our wealth and God or faith. And the question is, how does faith work with your wealth? How does God involve himself with the decisions that we make about the dollars that we spend? And the big idea is this, you either worship God with your money or you worship your money as your God. 
right? When it says, in God we trust, there's a connection on our bill that says that money and God, that ultimately you've got to pick one. Jesus says, you can't love God and money. You're going to worship or serve one and hate the other. And so you've got to choose. Do I, do I worship God with my money or do I worship my money as my God? Where does my faith ultimately reside and rest? And so as we get into James chapter five, James is picking up on that theme from his big brother, Jesus, that you can't worship God and money. And we're gonna look at three perspectives on finances and wealth and possessions. When I talk money and wealth, I'm talking your credit card, I'm talking your home equity, your car, I'm talking your cash flow, your investments, your inheritance, your life insurance, what would be the sum total of your portfolio? And there are three perspectives, selfishness, What's mine is mine, stealing, what's yours is mine, and stewarding, what's mine is his. So we'll jump in. The first perspective that he shares is selfishness, what's mine is mine. James 5, one through three, come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten and your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You've laid up treasure in the last days. So what he's talking about here are the rich. And we've examined this previously and I just need to revisit it because everything in our day gets politicized and weaponized. And ultimately this is true with finances. And we tend to think in two categories because so much of our political cultural conversation regarding finances and wealth is dominated by the categories of Marxism rather than the categories of scripture. And that is that there are rich and there are poor. There are oppressors and oppressed. There is the bourgeois and the proletariat. And the Bible has four, not two categories. It has a godly rich and godly poor and ungodly rich and ungodly poor. And the Bible is not so much concerned, are you rich or poor, but are you godly or ungodly? And you can be like Jesus, whether you're rich or poor. So Jesus today, is he rich or poor? Today, is Jesus rich or poor? He's very rich. I don't know, heaven is bougie. I'm just telling you. It's, people in heaven right now are like, Paradise Valley's a dump. That's what they're saying right now. Heaven is way, it's really nice. Nobody in heaven misses where they used to live. Okay, when Jesus was on the earth, was he poor or rich? Very poor. So Jesus was poor, Jesus was rich. You can be like Jesus, whether you're rich or poor. So the issue is not so much, are you rich or poor, but are you godly or ungodly? And so the Bible does give us some examples of those who are godly and rich. Here in James five, he's talking about the ungodly rich, the way they get and distribute their wealth. I'll give you three examples quickly of godly rich people in the Bible, just to stress this point, because otherwise what happens is sort of progressive, woke, uh, quasi neo-Marxists read this and they immediately go into political categories. See, God hates the rich. No, 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 God hates those who are ungodly and these are ungodly rich, but there are godly rich. So in the Old Testament, I'll give you three examples. In the Old Testament, there is someone who's very rich. His name is Boaz. He owns a company, he owns a field, he's got employees. He's very, very affluent and successful. His employees love him. They literally sing his praises. If you own a company, just look at Boaz, run it like that. And so what happens is there's this Moabite gal from this tragic family line of brokenness. She converts and she moves to Israel to be with God's people. Her name is Ruth. And she's destitute poor, she's a widow. And she ends up at the field of Boaz and Boaz being generous and godly, he tells the men, protect her, make sure she's safe, be generous toward her, provide for her and for her mother-in-law, Naomi. 
And so he's very godly and very rich and very generous. And as a result, they end up getting married and having a kid and then comes King David and somebody you may have heard of named Jesus. So that's their family. There's another person uh, in the uh, days of Jesus who's very rich and godly. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. Isaiah said that when Jesus died, he would be buried with the rich in his death. And Jesus was poor. And when he died, Joseph of Arimathea, who was rich, gifted him post-mortem his own personal burial plot so that he was buried with the rich in his death. It was a rich guy being generous. In the days of the New Testament, there's a lady named Lydia. She's a very affluent, successful, strong business leader. And she is a generous donor to the ministry of Paul. She sees that God is working through Paul and he's on the front line and she chooses to be on the supply line giving generously. The point is you can be godly and rich and you can be ungodly and rich. And here he's talking about the ungodly rich. So we find ourselves, in what city do we find ourselves today? Scottsdale. Everybody thinks that this is where the rich people live. This is where everybody comes from all around the world, right? So if you're from Canada, congratulations, the border open, welcome. This is what freedom looks like. Okay, so what happens is we live in a place that tends to be, or at least we worship in a place that tends to be very affluent. This is the highest real estate per square footage. This is the premier destination during the winter. This is where the resorts are and the golf courses are. When he speaks of the rich, he's probably thinking about a place like this. And he's talking here about the ungodly rich. And what he says is that they are hoarding. This is the failure. And that is that God is generous to some people and they're not generous back to God and others. That they take everything, they don't share anything. And what he's saying here is they have more than they could even use and they're not looking for any opportunity to meet a need. And again, as we get into this, he's not speaking about governments resetting economic equality, what he's talking about is Christians being personally generous. Don't read this and say, yeah, that's why I vote for socialists. Okay, this is not about who you vote for. Generosity is not voting for someone to steal from someone else. That's not generosity. That's actually stealing. That's criminal. When the government steals from one person to give to another, that's very different than one person being generous to love someone else. That's what he's talking about. This is not a political or a governmental issue. This is a personal and a church issue. But what he's talking about is they have so much uh, wealth, their gold and silver is corroding. He says that they have so many clothes in their closet uh, that it is uh, disintegrating and God is watching. And we read this and we think, oh my gosh, how could people have more than they use? Oh, let's talk about that. We are Americans. We have stuff in our house and then we have stuff in our garage and then we have a storage unit for the stuff that won't fit in our house or our garage, right? Some of us have closets that are as big as the house that uh, James and Jesus grew up in. The house they grew up in was about the size of a parking stall. I've been to where they grew up. And many of us, our closet is that size. And let's just be honest, we've all got some stuff that we don't use because we have food in the fridge, we have food in the cupboards, we have food in the pantry. Some of us have another fridge over in the garage and we are the people who do shop at Costco and buy things by the pallet, okay? So, and most of us could afford to lose a few pounds. And so sharing wouldn't be a terrible idea. Just something to pray about. It's interesting. I'm not getting as much affection as I was anticipating. <laughs> uh, some of you are like, I hope that the pastor today talks about my money and my weight. Well, you're welcome. Prayer answered. <laughs> You've come to the right place. 
But what he's saying is, it's fine to uh, enjoy what God has given you, but if you have more than you need, and most of us frankly do, then you need to be looking for opportunities to help those who are in a more difficult place and season. And he connects it to the last days and to judgment. And three times he's gonna speak of eternity. He talks about in verse one, miseries are coming upon you. Verse three, fire in the last days. And verse five, a day of slaughter. What he's saying is that your stuff in your life is part of your judgment before God. And that you may think, man, I'm really winning. And the answer is, well, until you stand before God and then you lose everything all at once. And so selfishness is what's mine is mine, okay? How many of you are parents? Parents, have you, have you seen this in your child? No. You've never seen this? Okay, then, <laughs> then you, were, you were Jesus' dad, okay? So everybody else, we've seen this. We don't need to teach kids to be selfish. They immediately are. They, that's mine, I had it first. I mean, they just immediately, selfishness. Why don't you share? No, that's mine. Okay. Selfishness is just our innate fallen disposition apart from God rehardwiring our heart's desires. And Jesus talks about the fact that there is a connection between our heart and our wallet. Now we can't see it, but God does. And Jesus says, where your treasure is, your heart is. And he says, you know what? You can learn about who you are by looking at how you spend. Because you could tell me, I love my family. Are you generous toward them? You could say, I love God. Okay, are you generous toward God? I really care about people. I care about justice. What I find very, I'm gonna say some things that are offensive and then I'm gonna say some things that are really offensive and then we'll bring the band back up. You're gonna like them. <laughs> uh, but those people who tend to be most progressive, most liberal, most woke, most socialistic, most redistribution of income statistically are the least generous. They think that generosity is giving someone else's money. That's not generosity. Generosity is your heart reflecting itself in your spending. And so my question to you would be today, how's your heart, where's your heart in regards to your wealth and your finances and your possessions? It's an indicator on your dash. It indicates what your priorities are. Jesus says your treasure and your heart, they're connected. So let me share with you briefly, uh, just some different perspectives on money. In fact, there's eight of them. I call them eight money personalities. Just like different people have different personalities when it comes to money, people have different money personalities. If you grew up in a home, it was normal to you because it's all you've ever known. And then once you get married, how many of you have had some money conflicts with your spouse? We all do because their per personality and your personality are different. You grew up in different homes and environments, you come together and you realize we see money differently. So these are eight basic money personalities. The first is the hoarder. This is the person who keeps everything and tries to spend nothing. How many of you have seen somebody that they were very rich and they died in squalor? You're like, this person didn't have a car, they ate cat food, they lived in a trailer and they died and they were a millionaire. You're like, what? Why didn't they get some chicken nuggets? What were they thinking, you know? <laughs> why, what, what, why? You know why? Because for the hoarder, money gives me security. The more money I have, the safer I am because no matter what happens, I've got money to take care of myself. How many of you, that's your heart. If you let go of a dollar, you feel like you're unsafe. Uh, the second one is the uh, spender. You're the opposite. 
And if you guys got married, we're praying for both of you. Uh, the way the spender works is this, for the spender, um, when I have a bad, hard or difficult day, I spend money to reward myself. I had a hard day, I'm going out to eat. I had a hard day, I'm gonna go shop. I had a hard day, I'm gonna go on a trip. I'm gonna go buy myself something. So statistically, who has the highest percentage of credit card debt per their income? A young single woman in her 20s, who's apparently had a lot of hard days, right? <laughs> hard day shoes, hard day clothes, hard day hair, hard day spa day, hoping to meet a guy with a job, The guys are laughing. The girls, I'm kind of getting the death stare. I'm gonna be honest with you. <laughs> All right. Hey, we were getting ready to sign up for the premarital class. You just ruined everything. I apologize. Okay, so um, the avoider is the person who's like, I hate money. I hate bills. I, I don't even like talking about it. It stresses me out. It freaks me out. I don't understand math. I, I, I never have enough money. Just leave me alone. How many of you grew up in a home where your parents, the bills would come and they just put them in a drawer? And they, you're like, what are you, what are, they're like, I'm not paying attention. Until the bill shows up and everything on the front is red, I'm not even opening it. <laughs> they gotta scare me before I'm gonna open that bill. And some of you just avoid it. I've talked to people, I was like, where are you at financially? They're like, I don't know. Well, that's not good. <laughs> well, how much do you have? I don't know. Why? It, I don't, I, money freaks me out. And that's the avoider. Uh, the hater, this is the person who says money's evil, uh, finances is evil, uh, people who try to make money are evil. You just, you just hate the whole thing. And sometimes this is either because you don't understand it or you've had a negative experience with money in the past. And people who believe this, they'll misquote a verse. They'll say, well, money is the root of all kinds of evil. It says, no, no, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil because money could be the root of all kinds of love. I mean, you could either use money to love people or use money to hate people. It's an opportunity, it's neutral. It's connected to your heart. You could do good or evil with money but some of you just hate it and you don't like to talk about it. How about this one? The manipulator, these are the people who give and we always say that they have strings attached. And it's like a marionette. With a marionette, there's strings attached and what the marionette does is it controls the puppet. And all of a sudden the manipulator, they give, but there's strings attached so that they can manipulate and control you. Okay, let me speak to the parents of adult children. We got two kids in high school, one in college, two that are married, and let me say this, if you are a parent, you cannot be the manipulator, you can't. If you're gonna give money to your kids, if you're gonna be generous or you're gonna help them, you can't use it to control them, you can't. You can give them advice, but at the end of the day, you need to give and let them make their own decisions. Sometimes the kids are right and you're wrong. And sometimes the kids make a mistake, just like you have. And so if you're going to give, give grace, don't give control. And the manipulator is the person, even if you're in a relationship, you're, you're reticent to borrow money or to get a gift from that person because you know, eventually they're gonna make you do something to pay them back. Hey, you owe me, don't forget. I, I, I let you borrow my car. You know, I, I helped you with your rent. I, I bought your groceries. Don't, just, just so you know, you owe me. They make sure that you're indebted to them. And the borrower becomes slave to the lender, the Bible says. And so particularly for those of us who are adult parents, if you're gonna give, don't give to manipulate, give generously to your kids. Gener generosity starts at home and then let them make their decisions. And if, they, if you don't like the decisions they make, then don't give them the money. 
but don't control them. The other one is the flaunter. This is the person who is, I'm gonna spend money to just show everybody how fabulous and successful I am. And so this is, I'm gonna go get a really nice car, I'm gonna wear really nice clothes, I'm gonna put stuff on social media. My whole life is just gonna be staged uh, like a photo shoot to show everyone how successful I am. Now, I, here's the big idea. I don't care what you drive. If you drive a nice car, great, pay cash for it. I don't care whose name is on your underwear. I'm not checking, it's none of my business. It doesn't really matter to me. But we do live in an area where a lot of people are flaunting money that they don't have. And sometimes you'll meet somebody and be like, oh my gosh, how do they, they must be crushing it. Nope, they owe on the car, they owe on the house, they owe on the clothes, everything is in debt. They're spending money they don't have to impress people they don't know. And the flaunter is the person who's projecting a lifestyle that they can't afford to be funding. And that's how you get yourself into real crisis and debt. Uh, in addition, there is the scorekeeper. Uh, some of you are video game people and you like to keep score. Some of you are sports people, you like to keep score. Uh, some people it's with money, wealth and possessions. It's how they keep score and compete. So it's like, what's your interest rate? Oh, my be I beat it. Uh, so how much of your money do you say, I, I beat you, I beat you. How, what's your retirement portfolio performing at? I beat you. And it's always competition. And it becomes hard with these people to even talk about finances because it always feels like it's a, it's a match to see which one of you is the winner and which is the loser. And then the last language um, or personality is the giver. And that is money and possessions are ways to love people. Okay, because you're either gonna love money and you're gonna use people or you're gonna use money to love people. And the giver is the person who says, you know what? Ultimately, this is how I love people. This is how I love people. So the first language is, the first problem is selfishness. What's mine is mine. The second that he's going to unpack and address. And my question would be this, where's your heart? What's going on inside of you? Who are you financially? And how is your heart revealed with the dollars you spend and the possessions you have? The second problem that he denotes is stealing. What's yours is mine. He says this in James 5, behold, verses four, behold the wages of the laborers. So there's the laborers and the landowners here who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud. So this is stealing are crying out against you and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That's the God who rules over the unseen realm and the angelic. You have lived on the earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You think, man, I am winning. No, you're, you're winning until the day of slaughter. You have, a, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. So he's talking here about the ungodly rich and the righteous or godly poor. He does not resist you. And this here is defrauding. Defrauding is you owe something and you're not gonna pay it. How many of you are a business owner and you've experienced people that don't pay their bill? It's a big problem. You're like, hey, you, you said, if we did this, you'd pay us this, and we did that and you won't pay us. Here it's the, it's the reverse, it's the inverse. There is the harvest season. So in that day, agrarian society, people go out and they, you know, they harvest all of their crops and there's no, there's no payday until the harvest is over because people are working for a percentage of the harvest. The harvest is over, all of the crops or grain or whatever the case may be come in, the landowner bankrolls it all, 
And now they're supposed to pay the employees that made it all possible and they don't. They don't do that. Instead, they steal from them. And what he's saying is, um, you are oppressing them and they are not opposing you. They're not fighting back. So what he's comparing and contrasting here are the ungodly rich who are the landowners and the godly poor who are the laborers. This, we call this today the employer and the employee. And so what he's talking to is Christian employers. If you own a business, if you're in management, are you treating those who are working for you rightly? And so the, the ungodly rich, they were powerful. The godly poor, they were powerless. The ungodly rich, they controlled the courts and they had the legal authority in a way that the righteous or godly poor did not. And, and, and you know, you're in a problem when you look at somebody, you're like, well, go get a lawyer and sue me. They're like, I, look, I'm a day laborer. I, you know, I, 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 don't, I can't afford an attorney. And furthermore, I don't have the same legal rights in that culture as a landowner. A landowner had legal rights that if you were just a laborer, you didn't have. In addition, uh, those who are ungodly and rich, they're attacking those who are godly and poor and they're not fighting in response. They're like, they didn't pick a fight and they're not warring back. They just did their job and they, they wanna get paid so they could feed their families. This is, this is just wrong. Now, the good news is this, um, God hears their cries. That's what it says. Their cries have entered into the ears of God. Here's the good news. Even if you can't get justice, there is a Lord who could still bring justice. Amen. And even if you can't afford an attorney, you have access to the Lord. And this is where they cry out to the Lord. And the Lord says, you know what? I'm gonna defend your case. Because what's happening is that those who are ungodly and rich, their family is like Caesar's. And Caesar ruled the Roman empire in that day. And, and they ruled like a mafia family. I mean, it, it was just brutality, lawlessness, just raise taxes, uh, seize property, murder people, uh, steal empires. I mean, it was horrible. And so the ungodly rich are acting like Caesar's family and the godly poor are like whose family? Like James' family and Jesus' family. If you don't know the story, Jesus, and his little brother, James, they grew up in a poor family. And so their mom and dad were Mary and Joseph. They, they married probably in their teen years and they were poor. They were rural working class. He was a carpenter. And there were times that they would go to the temple to worship the Lord. And when you would go to the temple to worship the Lord, you would bring a sacrifice. But if you were poor, there was a provision in the Old Testament law that you could take a lesser sacrifice and have it count as your worship. And it says that his family used the sacrifice of the poor. They were poor people. And James is looking at this and he's saying, hey, you're treating people who are like my family. They're, they're poor, hardworking, blue collar. They can't afford to defend themselves and, and they don't have affluence. They don't have margin. They're just kind of living paycheck to paycheck and you're extorting from them, taking advantage of them. And so the big idea is this, you can love money and use people, or you can use money to love people. And let me say this, we all come from a family line and our family line informs how we see money, wealth, and possessions. So I'm gonna share a little bit about my story and some of it might actually kind of shock you. Um, so think of it in terms of your story. And if you're married, go home and talk with your spouse and say, okay, tell me about your family history and I'll tell you about mine. If you've got kids, tell them about your family history so that they can understand where you came from, give perspective. 
So for me, uh, I'm Irish, we were the O'Driscolls. O'Driscoll means messenger of God. It's a preacher. And I was the first one. So, I mean, it was almost a false prophecy. We were not, <laughs> we were not preachers. And, uh, and I come from, my people come from County Cork in Southern Ireland. And we were generations of Catholic. And there were times that we were rich and there were times that we were poor. And what you tend to find is that the categories of rich and poor, they can wane from generation to generation or from year to year. You, you can have a boom year and a bust year, and this is life. So the, the question is not, are you rich or poor, but are you godly or ungodly? Because you can be godly whether you're rich or poor. Your income might vary, but your character should not. And so we, we've been rich and we've been poor. So there were times in County Cork, Southern Ireland in our family's history where we were very wealthy. We had land, I've, I've been there with my dad. We had a castle, uh, we had a large family estate. There were times that then the political leadership would change from Protestant, or excuse me, from Catholic to Protestant because we were a Catholic, we'd get booted out, we'd be marginalized, we lose everything, now we're impoverished. And there was one season where we were financially impoverished that uh, my relatives decided to take matters into their own hands. So there's a, there's a body of water there, Baltimore Harbor, and my relatives rode out and seized a Spanish ship transporting wine. So we were pirates. <laughs> okay? So some of you are like, no, it all makes sense. Uh, yeah, all right. So we went out and we seized a ship filled with wine. Now we're rich, but are we godly? No, there's no godly pirate, just so you know. It was such it was such an incident that in response, the Spanish invaded and they um, captured a number of Irishmen to make up for the loss of the ship and the wine. We started an international incident. So we, we were rich and we were poor. And to be honest, we weren't very godly. And then the potato ham famine hit and everything and everyone was decimated in Ireland. It still never recovered. The population still never bounced back in Ireland. And so it's hard to trace the history of my family because the records were in Dublin and they burned in a fire. So I went to Ireland some years ago with my dad, I call him Pops, and we tried to check out the family history to the best of our ability. And we're not exactly sure what happened, but what we do know is that the famine hit and a lot of our family members died of starvation. I mean, it's, it's interesting because right now, Americans struggle with obesity and diabetes and other people are dying of starvation. My family died of starvation and some in an effort to survive moved into these sort of group homes and then they got typhoid and died of typhoid. So now most of the family is dead and totally impoverished with no hope of the future. So two men in my family heritage and history decide we need to get to America. You know you're in a desperate place when you realize this country has nothing to offer me. I need a new nation. Okay? And that's where America is a great country. I mean, even the people who hate it aren't leaving. <laughs> just, just, just an observation. <sighs> It's not like we're flooding out of the country. And so what happened then is uh, these two men who were my relatives, they decided to get to America. They would need to go from County Cork up to Dublin where the ships were that were setting sail to New York and Ellis Island in America. And it's about a 200 mile walk. 
200, you know you're having impoverished times when you have nothing and everyone is dead and you walk 200 miles to board what was called a coffin ship because these ships were intended to transport goods, not people. And if people were on them, they died. So that's all they could afford. They got on a coffin ship. These two men landed in New York, went through the immigration and naturalization process, became legal citizens, worked through the process, but the Irishmen weren't really welcome in New York. And so they ended up in North Dakota. <laughs> That's mind bending to me. It's like anywhere on earth, North Dakota. Uh, that tells you we didn't pray about it. So, uh, so they ended up in North Dakota to become potato farmers. That's what Irishmen do. And so then they remarried, had kids. Over generations, the family built a large estate. We had a lot of land. We had a potato farming business. We had a lot of earth moving equipment. Uh, we built highways and roads and we had government contracts. And now we're quote unquote rich. And then generations of the family just started spending and drinking away all that was the family estate. And now we're ungodly and we're poor. Here's the big idea. You can give somebody money, but if you don't give them wisdom, it's not going to help them. That's the problem in our country. We keep giving out money, but not wisdom. And it doesn't fix anything because foolish people just waste money. And that was my family. We, we spent and drank away all the money until there was nothing left of the family farm or estate. That's where I was born. I was born on the decline side. And the farm is now gone and the family business is over. And I was born there and my mom and dad were 20 when they married. And I think they were around 21 when they had me. And my mom and dad were looking at the family dynamics and this previous affluent family system and realized there's nothing there for us. And so they got in the car and they went all the way to the West Coast and my dad uh, decided that he would be a construction worker and a contractor. And so I grew up in a blue collar working class family like James. My dad's name was also Joseph like his. And my dad swung a hammer as James and Jesus' dad did. So I grew up poor, working class poor. Um, I could still remember when I was a, a little boy, uh, I talked to my dad about it yesterday. I texted my dad, he called me right away. He says, what do you need, Marky? My dad still calls me Marky. And uh, as I, I call him Pops. I was like, well, Pops, tell me about some of your jobs growing up. You were the laborer. You were the working class poor that James talks about. And he told me two stories. One was, uh, he said, yeah, well, there was one guy I worked for and he'd pay us on Friday at lunch and he'd hand everybody the check and, you, and we'd all jump in our trucks and we'd have like, uh, you know, a, a competition to see who got to the bank first because the last guy probably was gonna have his check bounce. <laughs> you never wanna be the last guy. So th it was that kind of situation. And uh, I said, dad, was there ever a time, kind of James five where, where the employer took advantage of you as the working class blue collar employee? He said, yeah, Marky, there was a season when you were little, I was probably three or four years of age. I still remember this. It just really marked my, uh, my understanding of money and wealth and possessions. He said, Marky, you were like three or four and my dad was working out of town and sending the money back to my mom. So my dad would hang drywall all day. My dad hung sheetrock into his mid forties. I come from a long line of blue collar laborers. My grandpa, George, on my mom's side, he was a diesel mechanic. 
My dad was a drywaller and one of my first jobs, I lied about my age, I wasn't a Christian, falsified my birth certificate. And in high school, I was a longshoreman and joined a longshoreman's union. Okay, so I, we're not allergic to work. I don't mind working. And if you got something heavy, I'll pick it up for you. That's just how we are. And so it was, my dad was working hard and he would send the money back to me and my mom and he would sleep on the job site. He would sleep on the sheetrock or he would sleep in his truck. He would spend nothing and send everything home. My dad was a very hardworking and I would say godly poor. The way they obtained their money and what they did with their money was very, very godly. And so I'll never forget, my dad was working out of town. It was during an economic recession. There was no work and they had no money. And I remember at that time we were, we were poor. And so I remember as a kid having to wear a coat inside during the winter. We couldn't afford heating oil, uh, which would run our furnace. And so if you got cold, you would turn the oven on, wait for it to heat up, and then you'd open the door and sit in front of it for a few minutes to warm yourself. That's how I grew up. And, um, and I didn't know we were poor because everybody around us was poor. And I'll never forget, there was a day I was a little boy, my dad had a truck, I think it was an old Ford that he had for work and he would go to work in it. And I would drive in the truck with my dad because I felt like I was his little buddy. So my dad would put on a white t-shirt, jeans, boots, so did I. I had my own little steel-toed work boots. I'm three or four years of age. My dad had a lunchbox and a thermos. I had a little lunchbox, little thermos. He had a hard hat, I had a little hard hat. And there were times that my dad would take me to the job site with him as he was working second jobs. So he had a regular job and then he'd work side jobs just to make ends meet. And so I loved riding in the truck because I felt like I was my dad's little buddy. And I still remember the truck because in the cold winters, uh, I would sit on the floor and I would open the vents and just sit in front of the heater. Now I moved to Arizona. So, you know, I do that all the time. So uh, I'll never forget though, there was one day somebody came to our house and my dad was talking to him, filled out some paperwork. And I'm just a little three, four year old guy. And here's my dad, he's 23, 24. He's got me. And I think my sister was born at that time. She was one or two. He's 23, 24, on his own, newly married, two kids. And what happened was he was working a job, hanging sheetrock by the foot. Usually you pay by the hour. But if you pay by the foot, that means you're really squeezing the laborer. It's hard. It's hard to make a living. And my dad was doing okay, but a couple of the guys were struggling. So he talked to the boss and he's like, some of the guys got families. They can't, they can't make it on by the foot. Is there any chance we could do better for them? And the boss looked at my dad and said, you're fired. And so my dad's like, fired, I'm doing a good job. He's like, yeah, but you know, if, if people don't like what I'm paying, there's a recession, I could squeeze you all. And, uh, and that's what I'm gonna do, you're fired. So my dad came home and uh, he told my mom, he's like, well, well, we'll file for unemployment so that at least we got time so we can look for another job. It's a recession, there's no work. And the employer went in and said that he quit and wasn't fired, falsified the paperwork. So now my dad can't get unemployment. My dad goes in and asks, well, how do I appeal this? They say, well, it's about an eight week appeal process. But I was like, eight weeks? I got I got two kids, we're broke, it's the winter, there's no work. I mean, eight weeks, we can't make it eight weeks. So my dad sold his truck. It was one of those days that marked my life. That was our truck, that was for me and my dad. We would ride in it together. Somebody came over, my dad filled out the paperwork. 
and he handed him the keys. And I remember as a little boy, somebody got in our truck and drove away. And I looked at my dad, I was like, what's going on? Dad, they took your truck. And he's like, no son, it's now their truck. I said, dad, but that's our truck. Son, if I don't sell my truck, we can't pay the $160 this month for our housing and we'll be homeless in the winter. It was 160 bucks. And I remember in that moment sitting there just thinking to myself as a little boy, I gotta figure out money. I gotta figure this out. Now my dad has no job and he has no vehicle, but he does have two kids. The point is this, how you grow up really marks how you see money. Later on, uh, we moved and we moved to a neighborhood. I, was the old, I ended up being the oldest of five kids. My dad is a hardworking, integrous uh, man, very generous, my mom and dad are. And they're probably watching and I love you, mom and dad. The neighborhood I grew up in, there were primarily all poor people. I grew up next to an airport, uh, down the street from a couple of strip clubs. And in my neighborhood was the Green River Killer and Ted Bundy, two serial killers in my neighborhood. That's where I grew up. Everybody was poor, first generation immigrants. Everybody flies in and stays there. Nobody's got a job, nobody knows what they're doing. And so it was a poor neighborhood. And there were some who were godly poor. They're first generation, hardworking immigrant families. They're trying to chase the American dream. There are other people who are total hustlers and con artists. So when I hear the, the poor, I'm like, well, the, the godly poor, or the ungodly poor, because I, I lived and I know both. I mean, you know, I, I lived in a neighborhood where there were people that were scamming the government and they were really good at taking advantage of, of the generosity of others and it wasn't godly. And I knew people that were very godly and very poor. And my mom and dad were godly and they were poor. Um, I'll tell you a little story of, of our family. Um, every year when school started, uh, my mom would take us to Sears Surplus. Couldn't afford to shop at Sears, but we could afford Sears Surplus. And the rule was you can get one pair of shoes and you can get one coat for the school year. And then my mom would buy the extra coats. She would go to whatever the clearance rack was at the Sears Surplus and buy the extra coats. And she'd bring them home and she'd put them in our closet in our living room. I said, mom, why do you buy the extra coats? She said, well, you know, Marky, when the other kids come over, they don't have a coat. So we're gonna give them coats. Um, the kids in my neighborhood, almost all single moms, I'm the only guy in the neighborhood that had a dad. I had the only, to the best of my recollection, I had the only dad in the whole neighborhood. And, and this is why I'm so big on men and husbands and fathers and, and, and men leading their families in love. It's, it's my whole thing, it changed my whole life. You know, and that's why I always say we need less government and more fathers, that's just my thing. Um, and so my mom and dad knew that most of the kids in the neighborhood didn't have any money, they didn't have any dad. And those things go together, by the way. Those things go together. And so my mom would cook dinner and she would, create, she would cook extra food because she knew that the neighbor kids who were hungry would find their way to our house for dinner. We always had kids at our dinner table. And that was the only meal they had many days. There were kids that would show up soaking wet in the middle of the winter and they would leave with a coat. It came time that I decided I wanted to play baseball. I played a couple of different sports and I really liked baseball. Um, and so I tried out for the baseball team and there was no coach because there was no dad. A whole team of boys, zero dads. So I go home, I said, dad, 
we, we need a coach. We got, there's no dad, there's no coach. My dad's like, I never played baseball. I was like, but you're the only dad. So you're the coach. So my dad shows up, he's like, I'm the coach. I mean, he's never even had a glove on, but now he's the coach. The boys who showed up for our baseball team year after year, I saw my dad coach my teams, they would show up with no cleats, no glove, no hat, no bat, no gear, because they had no money and they had no dad. So my mom and dad, they couldn't afford new, so we would go to Salvation Army, Goodwill, and during the course of the year, my dad would buy gloves and cleats and bats that were used. Remember, we had a big box at our house and we'd put it in and then he'd put it in the back of his truck. And then when baseball season came and the kids showed up, we would, we would bless them. No need to be embarrassed, kid. Here's your cleats, here's your bat, here's your glove. And my dad didn't have much, but he bought all the uniforms. That was my dad. And I remember being so proud of my dad. I didn't share this previously, but just, I can still remember, maybe it's the Holy Spirit reminding me as a little boy, my dad opened his truck and he had all new baseball hats for our team. All the other teams, you would pay a fee to get your uniform. On my team, my dad bought your uniform. And I remember my dad taking the hats out and putting them on all the little boys. And I thought, that's my dad. That's my dad. And it birthed something in me to be a certain kind of man and to raise up a certain kind of men. And so I just wanna publicly honor my mom and dad. They were poor, but they were godly and they were generous. And they didn't, they didn't hustle people. They didn't steal from people. They didn't con from people. They used what they had, the, the little that they had to love and to serve others. And they're still those kinds of people. Uh, fast forward, I marry Grace. Her daddy's a pastor and they don't have much, but her family loves to give. They're generous, very generous. Grace and I get married. We both love to give. We both love to give. We've always given generously. Our kids grew up in a household where we give, 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 and we like it. It's fun. It didn't even hit me until yesterday. Um, I've always struggled with selling vehicles. And so I've given away far more vehicles than I've sold in my life. It's not a sin to sell your car. But I, 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 it's just this thing, somebody asked recently like, why do you just give your cars, why don't you sell them? It dawned on me yesterday, you know why? I saw somebody drive away in my dad's truck. And so if I've got a car and, I, and if you need a car, I'll give you my car, I'll go get another car. I gave a car away this week. We give away, we just give. And, um, and it's so fun to raise kids for whom stewardship and generosity is normative. See, some of you grew up at home and you're like, this sounds crazy. No, 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 your home was crazy. And I'm sorry for that. Normal is stewardship and generosity. I want it to be normal for your kids. We look for needs and we meet them. We pray for people and we help them. We don't be selfish and we don't steal. Instead, he's gonna talk about the third perspective, which is stewardship. And that is what's mine is, it's his. And let me say, this will change not only your life, this will change legacies for generations. First, he told us in James 1, that everything belongs to and comes from God. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father. So who owns everything? Where does it all come from? It comes from God. 
It all belongs to the Lord and it comes from his hand through your hand. And that is ownership. And then here is stewardship, James 4, two and three. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to what? Spend it on your passions, poor stewardship. Stewardship is this uniquely biblical view, not a cultural view. You can't get this at the university. You can't get this from politicians. You can't get this in our weaponized, polarized, economic climate of neo-Marxism, which is atheism. But the view of the Bible is that God is the owner and we are the manager, that's stewardship. And so it's okay, Lord, thank you. Thank you for my job. Thank you for my money. Thank you for my equity. Thank you for my car. Thank you for my house. Thank you for my food. What do you want me to do with it since ultimately it's yours? If I came to you and I said, hey, um, here's a thousand bucks. Could you go give them a hundred? And, and you can keep the other 900. You would say, oh, wow. We call that tithing. See, we tend to think, no, this is mine. God's like, no, actually it's mine. See, and right now in your heart, if you're like, Mark, why are you talking about my money? We just hit the root problem. It's not your money. It's his money. How many of you love to spend other people's money? Teenage girls, raise your hand. Okay, so, uh, <laughs> it's all God's money. We're all spending God's money. And so it's asking him, well, what do you want me to keep? And what do you want me to share? It's your money. What do you want me to do with your money, your wealth, your possessions, your portfolio? And so a steward says this, all that I have and all that I am belongs to the Lord. And I ask him what he wants me to do. So this is two things. It's stewarding wisely so you can give generously. Stewarding wisely is how you receive and distribute your funds and assets. And then giving generously is only possible if you steward wisely. If you don't steward wisely, you can't give generously because you've blown it. Stewarding wisely, I'll give you just some basic categories. Give your tithe to God, tithe is 10%. Tithe literally means 10%. People argue about this, I don't, I don't know why. It doesn't make any sense to me. People are like, can I tithe less than 10%? It's 10%, tithe means 10%. Like, you know, I believe in Jesus and math. So it's 10%. Yeah. And, and then after that, you pay, your, you pay your tithe to God and then you pay your taxes to government. Did Jesus pay his taxes? Yeah, which is crazy. God comes to the earth and they're like, tax him. I heard he owns everything. Let's see what percentage we can get. <laughs> That's government. <laughs> the third thing is then, here's, this is crazy. And if you're in your 20s, just be prepared to have your mind explode. Spend less than you make. It's crazy. Okay, one mom is really excited about this. Okay. <laughs> so you're like, no, I don't. No, no, no. Then you get credit cards and you vote for socialists. No. No. Spend less than you make. Be responsible for yourself. And then here's a crazy idea. Four, save. Do you know why you save? Because something's going to happen. Your transmission's going to blow up. You're going to need glasses. Your kid's going to need braces. And we call that Tuesday. <laughs> just, you're, you're gonna need margin and then invest and investing is for the future. It is retirement um, and it, it is planning to give your 
kids and grandkids something other than a bumper sticker that says I'm spending their inheritance. Every time I see that, I do a little horn ministry. That thing just drives me crazy because the Bible says that a wise man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. You're investing thinking generationally. If you're selfish or stealing, you can't be stewarding. If it's all about you, it can't be about your kids and grandkids. And if you're stealing, God won't bless you. If you're stewarding, you're thinking about how to pass your wealth from one generation to the next. And if you don't know how to do this, I just tell you, look for a guy named Dave Ramsey, okay? He talks about stewardship. I've met him, he's a good guy, I like him. My kids have accepted him in their heart. They grew up listening to him. Uh, if you don't know what to do with your money, just go, go, go have Dave Ramsey disciple you so that then as you steward wisely, you can give generously. And this is worship, okay? This is worship. And sometimes what happens is people come to church and you're gonna get the band in a moment and they're gonna be great. And you're gonna be so thankful. But people are like, I love the worship. Worship doesn't happen unless you bring your sacrifice. In the Bible, there are zero people who go to worship empty-handed. Worship is bringing a sacrifice. So worship is something that you bring as an offering unto the Lord. And we live in a state, Arizona was declared by WalletHub and Forbes as the least charitable state in the United States of America. We are the least charitable state in America. And we have a lot of Mormons. And Mormons are forced to give and they still aren't moving the needle. That tells you how non-generous the rest of us are. Here's the good news. Some of you immediately right now, I can see your face like, here comes the shakedown. Here comes the shakedown. <laughs> He's gonna put big guys with tattoos at the door. We're gonna have to drop our credit card in the bucket and they're gonna pray about an amount. I can see where this is going. I can see it on your face. Some of you right now, you're waiting for me to pass the bucket. You're gonna throw up in it. I mean, that's just, that's where you're at. The good news is overall this year, you guys have been a generous church. I don't know if you've been a generous individual, You've been a generous church. And what's really cool is um, we don't give to get a blessing, we give to be a blessing. The Bible says it's more blessed to give than receive. The book of Acts quotes the Lord Jesus. And I just wanna encourage you, we've, we've had incredible years. We're coming into year end, we wanna finish strong, but you know, we, we've been growing like crazy. So you guys allowed us to buy, or excuse me, to, to, to rent. Uh, the cafe across the way do students and women's and kids and we do uh, parenting and we do premarital. We needed some space and you guys made that happen. We bought a studio so that we could get out Bible teaching. We're gonna get out Bible teaching from that studio to 110 million people on planet earth this year from Trinity Church, which is incredible. Um, you guys allowed us to do some great improvements to the kids ministry and kids ministry exploded just on a recent weekend. We had over 600 little kids checked into kids ministry. I mean, so, I mean, you know, they have figured out we have bouncy houses and snacks. They figured that out. <laughs> and, and we've been able to give away Bibles and Bible study material and books. And we, we give, 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 give. And we throw these huge parties that are free. Why do we throw huge parties that are free? Because we want people to practice for heaven. Heaven is an incredible party. Everybody's having a good time. And God's the one who pays for it. It's called grace. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, you don't earn your way to heaven. You don't pay your way to heaven. You receive Jesus and he picks up the tab for everyone and everything. And so what happens is we throw these very big expensive fun parties and people come. Non-Christians come. 
And they're like, why, how much is it? It's free. Why is it free? Because the people in the church love you. Because Christians need to pay for ministry to reach non-Christians. Non-Christians aren't gonna pay for ministry. So Christians pay for that. Here's the good news I have to report. As a result of the parties we throw and the ministry we have this year, we have baptized over 400 new Christians this year alone. And, uh, and I wanna share a real-time story with you. It was interesting, I was driving in yesterday and Grace got a text. Gal showed up at the church, non-Christian, people in the church were generous to her, loved on her. She gave her life to Christ yesterday and wants to get baptized. Every week, every day, we get these incredible stories. And I wanted to share one real time uh, with you. And it's, uh, it's, it's really pretty incredible. And I just wanna thank you because God has two pockets. He has a tithe pocket and an offering pocket. The offering pocket is for missions or military veterans or first responders or first generation immigrants or single moms. The tithe is, that just goes to the Lord first. And I want you just to be encouraged in your generosity in the tithe pocket, which we call recurring giving. And our family sets up a weekly amount that we give. That's our tithe. And in an offering, we're looking for needs and opportunities. But I just wanna share one story of what God is doing very recently, just to encourage you. I got this email this week. Dear Pastor Mark, my personal spiritual journey back to God began almost two years ago. I won't bore you with the details, but it seems I was destined to find your church and you. I had been experimenting and pursuing the path back to God through yoga and meditation. Just so you know, that, that's a dead end. That's a cul-de-sac. It is my 13-year-old daughter that has been pushing me toward church and Christianity. I was raised a Christian and had love for Jesus, but lost my way believing I was intellectually above religion. I did not raise my children with formal religious education. I exposed them to tradition and a smattering of churches and temples, but was fearful of brainwashing or indoctrinating them. We call that parenting with the promise of a savior. I wanted them to rely on themselves. The 13 year old daughter has been declaring herself a Christian since a little girl, which is awesome. I heard her, but did not necessarily encourage her. Fast forward to the era of COVID and my family found ourselves in the midst of unimaginable strain and surreal experience. My husband is a physician, I'm a school nurse, and they've got a son who's in the military. I was invited to your church by a very trusted friend. One fateful Saturday, the daughter and I agreed to go to your service. It was the day uh, in the book of James and it was baptism day. That was just a few weeks ago, friends. Some of you were here and you remember this. Your sermon was moving and relevant. My daughter turned her face toward me and said, I wanna get baptized. Her father is a brilliant, kind, intellectual and all around Renaissance man. He did not like her declarations. My daughter who adores her father, love to hear that did not fear, did not cower, and did not deny herself. We kept going to church every Saturday at 4 p.m. We could not wait for Saturdays to come. She planned her baptism and her father had to get beyond his beliefs and fears and show up for his daughter and decided to see what she was experiencing. He was moved at his first visit. He came back the next week. He went to her baptism and the following week we cried, witnessing her faith and courage. We celebrated her day with family and friends. Anyway, my husband has not been himself for months. I thought maybe he was depressed due to stress, though he denied it, I knew something was not right. Uh, He was stubborn and did not take my advice to get formally evaluated. My daughter said to me several weeks ago, I know dad has a brain tumor. She just knew in the spirit. Turns out she was correct. 
Our last visit to Trinity, you spoke about the brevity of life. It was last weekend. My daughter grabbed my hand and we held it tightly for the entire sermon. She knew and has known all along. My husband was somewhere, he was in this room. Uh, she goes on to say, my husband was somewhere in the church, but not seated with us. Turns out he had to leave immediately after the service due to a horrible headache. That night I called an ambulance and now we're facing a new reality. My daughter is a child of God. She has single-handedly brought us to Jesus. She is guiding my husband through his spiritual journey. My husband, I, my husband said, I felt Pastor Mark's sincerity and I felt his love. Though I could be fearful and devastated, for some reason I feel more joyful than ever before, the mom says. I wake up with a feeling of abundance and gratitude. My life is exploding with Christians at every turn. God is moving us. After crying upon hearing the diagnosis of her dad, uh, the, the daughter said, it's time to pivot. Um, I'll tell you, when, when daughters quote my sermons to their dads, I get really emotional. <laughs> I'm certain you face hate every day. You face cancel culture and the evil forces trying to take our freedom. Please continue to speak the truth and know that you are guiding us, guiding my precious daughter and husband and impacting our entire family. We're spreading the good news. Our daughter hopes to meet you in person one day. I met her this morning. She's really cute. Although I realize why that might not be possible. That's always possible. But know that she loves Jesus. She loves you. She finds her strength in his word. And I love this last line. Trinity is our home. Uh, let me show you the family real quick. Um, so Pastor Darian visited dad in the hospital this week and he gave his life to Christ. And um, he's in recovery right now, pray for him. And his goal is to get out and play piano on the worship team. And that's his daughter and his wife. Would you guys like to meet them? I think they're here with us. Come on up. Come on up. Thank you guys for doing this. I know it's exactly what you don't want to do. <laughs> um, we love you. It's an honor to have your family. The fact that you would come here as non-Christians and let us teach you about Jesus means the world to us. And these people love and serve and give. And we're all praying for your husband that he would be healed up and come home. And sweetheart, you're an incredible young woman. You. Yeah, you're an incredible young woman. Um, And I, I know you didn't want to say anything, but I, I just say, your dad, I'm sure he adores you. You've got the face of an angel and you're a total sweetheart. And, uh, and God used you to open your dad's heart because you already had your dad's heart and you love Jesus. And so with his heart open to you, that meant that his heart was open to Jesus because you brought Jesus with you. And there's something super powerful about a godly daughter. And I just thank you for your courage and strength. Yeah. 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 Why don't you stand right here? Why don't you guys, rate, I'll call the band out. We're gonna worship. Uh, why don't you just raise a hand and let's pray for this family. Lord God, I thank you so much for this beautiful family. I pray for the son who's in the military and having to make some very difficult decisions regarding his freedom and his career path. I pray for dad who's in a hospital right now recovering from surgery 
And I pray for these uh, strong, courageous women of faith. And God, I pray for a peace that surpasses understanding in them and through them. And God, we look forward to the day when, uh, when Lord God, we have resolution to all of this. Right now, they're in the middle of it. And so, Lord God, I thank you for the fact that we can be their church family, that we can pray for them, we can love them, we can support them. I thank you that mom now knows Jesus, that dad knows Jesus, that daughter knows Jesus. And Lord God, we all say goodbye at some point. I hope it's not days, but decades from now. We pray that dad would not only enjoy his amazing daughter, but his grandkids one day too. But God, there, there always comes a day when we say goodbye. Uh, but I thank you, Lord, that to live is Christ, to die is gain, to depart and be with the Lord is far better, that we grieve, but not as those who don't have hope. And I thank you, God, that now that they know Jesus, they see into eternity. And I thank you that eternity has come to them. So God, we pray for grace and provision on this beautiful family. And God, I just sense your pleasure, the Father's heart toward these women. And I pray for encouragement on them. We love them, we stand with them, and we promise we're gonna be praying with them. And we're looking forward to hearing good news. And in the meantime, Lord, just thank you for this place and these people, starting with this family in Jesus' good name, amen. We hope you enjoyed today's sermon. If you want to be a part of getting more Bible teaching out across the world, visit realfaith.com donate. And for more content like this, visit realfaith.com. Thanks for listening. And remember, it's all about Jesus.